Welcome to the podcast From Zambia to Ireland, 15 Years of Insights on HIV and AIDS, where Professor Father Michael Kelly, expert and scholar, shares his wisdom through a special collection of addresses delivered from 2006 to 2020 during the annual Irish Aid Professor Father Michael Kelly event. Father Michael was born in 1929 in Tullamore in Ireland, later becoming a Zambian citizen. He dedicated his life to advocating for an integrated and sustained approach to HIV and AIDS. He raised the importance of community, dignity, compassion and humanity, and he was a passionate advocate for education and for the rights of women. He died in 2021. My name is Nadine Ferris-France, Executive Director of the Irish Global Health Network and longtime friend of Father Michael. It is an honour and a privilege to ensure that Father Michael's wisdom and legacy is widely shared. Are we making sufficient use of these people who exist in our countries and who could be helped to respond to HIV and AIDS and to other matters. Episode 10, The Global Health Workforce. In this episode, the 2011 address, Father Michael spoke about the global health workforce, describing academic bias, stereotyping, and resources, both monetary and human capital, in the HIV and AIDS response. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Good evening to all the distinguished guests, ministers, and ambassadors and our medical profession as well. I am very honoured to be able to speak here this evening. I'm very grateful to Irish Aid, to the Irish government, and therefore to the Irish people for maintaining this lecture over a number of years, even in a time of financial crisis and hardship. It's a great indication of how serious and committed the people of Ireland are, through their government, uh, to improving the well-being of people who are blessed than the people of Ireland. I want also to thank very, very much our previous speaker, Dr. Ranath Nibelang, and our subsequent speaker, Ms. Yvonne Chattachata. It's such an honour and such a privilege to be able to share a platform with them in her, the closing part of her film, um, Yvonne said, Africa is our home, and Africa is our home. But I certainly join with that also. <laughs> Africa is not And Africa is certainly my home. Wonderful people, resilient people, and as the former Irish ambassador to Zambia said when he was leaving Lusaka a couple of years ago, I hate going away from here because it was from here that my ancestors came. And as I read in a much more scientific book in the last couple of months, somebody, an evolutionary something or other, a hard one to pronounce and remember, said, the first European was almost certainly an African. <laughs> so we are in good company. 
and will come from a good place. Within the last 12 months, I was asked by the World Forum on Early Care and Education for Children to give, to say something at their meeting. And when I got the program, and I had it here, and I looked down to Thursday, the 5th of May, I think it was, I found that what I was down for was, yeah, Thursday, the 5th of May, 10.45, Michael Kelly, Zambia, AIDS and Children, provocation. <laughs> I've been asked to make presentations, to give lectures, to give opinion pieces and so forth, but it was the first time I was ever asked to deliberately to an audience of over 900 people. <laughs> So I'm going to continue with that this evening. I'm going to provoke. Some words and ideas that might help all of us to sit up and think differently and even think better in a word, word with AIDS, but also a word with GB, with malaria, and so many other illnesses and sicknesses, some of them preventable, almost all of them curable. And as we do so, we might be able to reflect on a few other aspects of our world. I want to go back a little bit in history. Uh, it's in the AIDS domain. To 2005, what is called the Paris Declaration, where the big money players in the world came together with other countries to consider what would be the best strategy to use in coordinating and harmonizing the use of aid, so that foreign aid donors were not tripping over one another. And they came out with what they called the three ones, that there should be one national coordinating authority, that there should be one national framework for action, and that there should be one monitoring and evaluation system. And that seemed to satisfy the donors that everything would be hunky-dory. But back in Zambia, when this was being put into practice, a number of us came together and we said there was a missing, we needed something else. We needed a fourth one, that there should be one coordinated and acknowledged voice from civil society, from all of those groups that work so relentlessly, so industriously in the fields of health and education and so forth, but particularly here in the field of HIV and AIDS, trying to reduce the impacts of the epidemic and seeing how they can move in the areas of prevention and treatment. We didn't get very far, but I was encouraged with a document that came out from UNAIDS only within the last week. It's called Guidance on Collaboration with Civil Society. And it's directed not to governments, and not to civil society, 
but to the members of UNAIDS, the World Bank, UNICEF, UNESCO, and all of these United Nations organizations. And it is acknowledging publicly and possibly for the first time that the response to HIV and AIDS has been very largely spearheaded at the field level by civil society and by member organizations. And I think that is important for us. And I notice with gratification that in the abstract books that were distributed, that there's quite an amount on how to mobilize civil society and how to help them better. And even what the Minister from the Soto has just been putting before us about um, allowances for volunteers and particularly for the women who are providing the home-based care, all of this is excellent and all of this is within the same uh, range. Coming up more recently, UNAIDS has been speaking to us in the last two years about moving towards an AIDS-free world. And in that AIDS-free world, there would be zero discrimination on the basis of HIV, zero new HIV infections, zero age-related deaths. And all of that bringing us to an AIDS-free world. That came home to me here in Dublin remarkably this very morning. I was being driven outside Dublin, a taxi driver, and I mentioned that I was in the area of AIDS. And he said, two of my brothers died of it. And he went on to tell me, that they had been at a funeral, he and the two younger brothers, and after the funeral, they went into a pub to get a bit of lunch, a bite to eat, and after some time, he noticed they were getting no attention, and he went up to the barman and asked, what's the problem? We're waiting for service. And the barman said, I've been told we can't offer you service. There has been a complaint from some of the people having lunch in this hall. HIV discrimination is everywhere, even here in our midst. And HIV new infections, they are increasing in Ireland, not as dramatically as in other countries, but still increasing. Age-related deaths, I'm not sure about them in Ireland, but certainly they're occurring where I come from, from in Zambia, where you might have five, six deaths every hour of every day throughout the year attributable to AIDS conditions. And so that is what UNAIDS is aiming at, that this situation should change. But as with the three ones, where we suggested from Zambia the need for a fourth one, I feel that we need also a fourth zero. We're not going to get to the other three zeros of zero discrimination, zero age-related debts, 
and zero new HIV infections unless we face up to one other one. And that is zero fudging of central AIDS issues. And in a, an academic gathering, it's not too easy, maybe not too pleasant, to have to say and to acknowledge that there has been considerable dodging and skirting of issues. A considerable amount of burying issues in the cupboard, not examining them, not allowing them to be examined as they require because they are politically sensitive or because they might conflict with previously held scientific opinions and outcomes. I think also we have to be very careful about the out-of-this-world aspirations that are being put before us in the area of AIDS as if it was all over. It is far from all over. I'd say a little bit more about that in a moment if there is the time. And I think we've underestimated the challenge of reaching an AIDS-free world. Just let me give you one area where I believe there has been a lot of fudging going on. And that is the area of genetics. A couple of years ago at a conference, there was a very prestigious Swedish professor from the Karlsruhe Institute in Stockholm who had done some of the major discoveries in HIV. I think it was the distinction between HIV-1 and HIV-2, but I'm not absolutely certain. And I asked him, what about genetic implication of this disease? Is it, is there, do genetics play a role? But he says, of course, and everybody knows that. But I said, Professor, I'm sorry. Nobody knows that. <laughs> that is not spoken about. That is a taboo issue with UNAIDS. I asked personally one of the most senior officials in UNAIDS, why don't we look into the genetic determinants or issues that can be related here? And I was told, absolutely not. It is bad enough that it is in Africa at such intensity. We do not want the slur to be cast on Africa that the people are genetically predisposed to HIV uh, transmission or infection. Yet, the genetic evidence that we seem to have at the moment is that the Northern Europeans, the Swedes, the Norse, and so forth, about 15 to 18% of them are genetically incapable of contracting HIV. Even in Southern Africa, it's said that 90% of them are carrying a gene which predisposes them to HIV infection. 
Now, the trouble with ignoring that kind of thing in my very limited parochial book is, first of all, there are avenues there, surely, for further investigation for the development of vaccines that will protect. There's also room there to protect people or to prevent resources all going along the one track that if we can solve the sexual transmission of the disease or how to deal with that sexual transmission, we would have solved everything. And also, there is the almost inevitable stereotyping of Africa. Africa, the cone of Africa, Southern Africa, South Africa, Lesotho, Botswana, Mozambique, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Namibia, they're the countries where AIDS is concentrated most in the world. And emphasizing strongly the sexual transmission of the disease, while I'm not denying it, but I'm saying emphasizing it strongly, almost inevitably casts an image of Africa as a highly sexualized continent with an unspeakable amount of sex and sex of a strange nature. And yet, the fact is that one of the pillars, you might say, of a modern approach to sexual activity what's called multiple concurrent partnerships, stop these and you will stop the disease. That is built on a model which doesn't work, but apart from the model not working, it ignores the fact that international evaluations and assessments show us that in Southern and Central Africa, Multiple concurrent partnerships would occur on the average for six men out of the hundred. In Europe, it would be ten or twelve. The United States and France, I'm not quite sure why France. <laughs> it might be fourteen or fifteen. <laughs> We're loading ourselves with something, and it mightn't be the right, we mightn't have the answers at all. The idea that we shouldn't speak about it because this would be saying, well, the African people are predisposed to this disease, and they're at a genetic uh, disadvantage in relation to HIV transmission. We've no inhibitions about speaking about sickle cell anemia, a condition that only people uh, of Africa or African descent can manifest in the numbers that have been shown. And about 80% of the people of sub-Saharan Africa are carrying the gene that will, could lead to sickle cell anemia in their offspring. We do inhibitions about that, but we are inhibitors and almost forbidden by UNAIDS to speak about this in relation to HIV. 
I feel that that is wrong and that that is something that needs to be changed. I'm concerned at present about some of the reports that are coming out. The tone of the reports more than the actual content. The tone is very upbeat, as if we had conquered HIV, as if we had conquered this disease. We're hearing enthusiastically about a new treatment platform that will be a platform also for prevention. We're hearing that the goal of an AIDS-free generation is within reach. Now, to be fair there, that statement, the goal of an AIDS-free generation is within reach, is what the media published of what Hillary Clinton said last year on World AIDS Day, the 1st of December last year. What Hillary Clinton actually said was, the goal of an AIDS-free generation is possible. I think there's quite a difference between something being possible and something being within reach. But the spin doctor's got at it, and one is given the impression that mission accomplished, we've reached the goal. Very far from it. I don't think anybody that I, any document that I've read, any speaker that I've heard, has addressed the real problem of treatment for HIV or for AIDS. Currently, and this is a magnificent accomplishment, and we must salute it as a very positive thing out of the early years of this century, Currently, almost 7 million people in the lower economic countries are on treatment. And that is wonderful, and I think we should applaud. But that is costing, with other AIDS efforts, in and around 10 to 12 billion dollars a year. Money which is coming from the Irish economy through its contribution to the Global Fund, and as an aside, and I hope I'm not incorrect in saying this, Ireland is to be congratulated that it has, that it is up to date with its payments to the Global Fund, unlike so many other countries which have made pledges but haven't yet honored them with hard cash. But, Because the chair of the global fund, I think I heard the saying that's true. <laughs> but that is only one aspect. Getting these seven million on to AIDS treatment and maintaining that treatment is now proving more and more difficult. In the year 2010, for the first time, resources fell for AIDS activities across the world. And what does that mean in practice? In practice it means that at a clinic in Malawi, which most years would admit 350 new HIV patients, they can't do that anymore. They're limited 
to 250 at clinics in Lusaka, where a person like my, the man who does my laundry goes or used to every three months to get his tablets. He's now getting only one month supply. He will have to go back every month for his supply. Now that's fair enough for him in some ways. I think I'm a decent employer, so I get the day off for it. That one doesn't happen all over the country. And as the minister pointed out, for people to get to clinics, it may take two days and take a considerable amount of their income of their livelihood. And now they're having to go every month instead of every three months. And what does that mean? It means, of course, they're not going to go back. They're going to lose heart. They're not going to go back to the assessment that they require. So maintaining the seven million on ART treatment is something that is extremely difficult. But that's only those seven million. What about the nine million additional patients who are in need of antiretroviral therapy and are not yet receiving it? That's a WHO figure. So we will, we have five million, seven million getting it, a further nine million in need, not receiving it, and then beyond them, there's a further 20 million who are in need, who have HIV, not yet in need, but who's going to look after them when the time comes? And beyond them again, there's the two to two and a half million who become newly infected every year. I don't think we've sat down and done the arithmetic on this at all at all. There is a group called the 2031 group, which is producing evaluations and reports on the state of the epidemic in 2031, which will be 50 years after it first came to public attention in 1981. And their projections are horrendous. They're projecting that the cost will rise from the current 10 billion or so to 35, 37 billion a year. And another group, the United States Institutes of Medicine, they have forecast that we, they've stated bluntly that the world is rapidly losing the battle against HIV because the numbers are going to continue increasing at an alarming rate. And I think with all of these wonderful aspirations and statements of intent on that, I don't think we're going to reach that. I don't think that we're going to reach the zeros that we are looking forward to. You don't look forward to zeros in your pay package, but in this area, we do look forward to zeros. And one of the things that makes me ask, and this is why I said this involves obviously thinking wider than just one epidemic or a whole series of epidemics and sicknesses, is do these people who have HIV or malaria or tuberculosis or these other diseases, do they really count in the world? 
The Global Fund, as I say, is not getting an increase in the contribution. In fact, it's experiencing decrease. And we're told the world is in financial crisis, economic crisis. Countries cannot afford. It was in the tick of the fingers that many of these countries were able to guarantee billions of euros to revamp their economies. We're only asking here for a matter of 10 or 12 billion euro per year. And yet, they would generate that money overnight in order to save economies, and they keep trying to do so at these mini-meetings in Brussels and elsewhere, to generate money and more money and more money to keep, if you don't mind my saying so, what seems to be a rotten system going. in order to keep people alive. The life of people is the wealth of nations. The lives of people are the wealth of the world, and they're being jeopardized by this strange uh, order of priorities of people, of the world today. Coming closer to what you were talking about, or what this conference is about, for global health, uh, and some of the matter that the minister spoke about already in her presentation, human resources, not just financial resources to deal with these diseases, but the human resources that are required. According to the latest figures from the United Nations, Ireland has 31 physicians per 10,000 people. South Africa has eight. Lesotho has one. Zambia has one for every 19,000 people. And Malawi has less than one for every 20,000 people. You begin to ask, what exactly are we doing, and are we doing anything to remedy this? There are the ethical questions that arise about recruitment, about labor mobility, and some of these we may be discussing these days. There are the technical problems of training personnel, rapid training of personnel in the numbers required. There is the whole issue of task shifting and bringing, giving additional responsibilities to less highly qualified people, as again we heard something about it from uh, Lesotho. All of these are good, all of these are important, but I sometimes wonder, are they necessary? Nadine very kindly sent me uh, an electronic version of the uh, final abstract book, and I scanned through it for 
one word or for one term, and I found extremely little about it in the book. The term was traditional healers. Are we making sufficient use of these people who exist in our countries and who could be helped to respond to HIV and AIDS and to other matters. Just to put a figure on that, in Zambia, population of about 13 and a half million, we have 40,000 traditional healers. And they're in an association. 25,000 of them are registered. The rest are not registered or not registered yet. But that is an enormous number compared with the 700 positions that we have got, in spite of our university having graduated about 1,500 positions in the last decade and a half. And these people, the traditional healers, they're the ones to whom nearly everybody goes in the first instance, urban as well as rural people. They go to see them, and they take the remedies from them. And even if they are attending a Western type of medical outlet or clinic, they will still go to the traditional healers to get their word and things, and to get their assistance and their advice. But I wonder, are we ignoring these, and are we ignoring them not only to our own cost, but also to the costs of the people living in these countries. And then finally, I think this whole problem of responding to HIV, malaria, TB, the other diseases, the lack of trained personnel in the way we think of trained personnel, I think it makes us ask, are we using the correct paradigm? And not just in health, in education, in economics, in political issues, in church issues. To what extent are we, in fact, ignoring much of the substratum that is there in the developing countries and instead importing what we have found satisfactory amongst ourselves here in the North or in the West. Really, I think we have to ask ourselves whether as health professionals, as economists, as teachers, educators, as church personnel, or whatever it may be, are we in fact imperialists? I said at the beginning that I was going to evolve. <laughs> I don't have an answer, but I leave it to you to answer. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. It is important to remember that HIV and AIDS has not gone away, and more than ever we must call on all communities to redouble efforts and to ensure that we keep HIV high on the agenda. Please visit FatherMichaelKellyZambia.org to learn more. We are